Well, welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. As uh, we just read, we will be in Jonah 3, uh, verses 6 through uh, 10 this morning, which might sound strange to you if you were here uh, last week. So if you're here last week, you know that we were in chapter 4. And the reason that we're actually going backwards is, uh, is not because uh, we just forgot this text. It's not because of poor planning. It's not because we're trying to stall before we get to 1 John, which is what we're going to go through after we finish Jonah. Uh, the real reason is because I have discovered a code. If you read Jonah backwards, then you will see this code too. No, that's not the reason either. The reason is because I was going to preach this text last weekend. And then the next morning, Casey and I were going to wake up and we were going to head to the hospital and we were going to have uh, my li- little baby boy. And uh, he decided that's not the plan after all. And so he came a couple of days uh, early. And, uh, and so Zach preached this week's text last week and I am preaching last week's text this week, if that makes uh, sense. So that's why we're doing this. So this, uh, the, the Friday before I was supposed to preach this, so uh, a week ago, um, Casey and I went out to dinner with a few friends, and, uh, and so uh, we had a great time, sat on a, on a porch there at uh, a new Tex-Mex restaurant in the area, and, uh, and then afterwards, I kind of looked at all of the friends as our kids were, were playing, and, uh, and I said, who wants to kind of keep this party going? Let's go and go, let's go get some Froyo. And, uh, and so uh, there were a couple of takers, but my wife was not one of them. She gave me a somewhat unhappy look. And, uh, and then she leaned in, and, uh, which was surprising to me because we had already talked about, should we get, uh, maybe do something uh, as dessert afterwards? And, uh, but she looked at me with this unpleasant look, and she leaned in, and she whispered to me, and she said, I think my water broke during dinner. And, uh, and so instantly, my mind is flooded with a bunch of questions. Uh, the first question being, so are we a no on the Froyo? Like, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. The, the second one is being, why did you say the word think? Like, wouldn't you know if your water broke or not? I don't understand why you said think. Third, I thought, what does this mean? Do we need to go to the hospital? Fourth, I'm thinking, what do we do with uh, our daughter Larkin? Fifth, I'm thinking, what do I do about my, uh, my, my sermon? That means Zach's going to have like basically 24 hours to prepare uh, for a, uh, a sermon. And, uh, and then sixth, I thought, again, this Froyo thing, what are we, what are we doing about that? And so I got to be pastorally vulnerable vulnerable for a second and just admit I was really concerned about frozen yogurt in, uh, in this moment. Uh, here's the, uh, here's the, the, the irony. So with, with uh, Larkin, we were induced, and so Casey went way past her, uh, her due date, and uh, so we went into the hospital the night before, and we were induced and all that, so we never actually had to experience the joy of water breaking while at dinner or any of those uh, sorts of things. And the irony of this is that a few years ago, I stood on this very stage as we were waiting for the birth of, of my daughter. And, uh, and, and I mentioned in a sermon that my wife was kind of concerned, kind of anxious, kind of fearful that she wouldn't know if she was in labor. And, uh, and then a, a, a few women uh, in the church lovingly came up and laughed at my wife and said, trust me, you'll know if you're in labor. Well, who's laughing now? Because my wife, with uh, the birth of my son, did not know that, uh, that she was uh, in labor. She thought that, uh, that maybe her water had broken. She thought that maybe she was having contractions, but she really wasn't sure. And since we weren't sure, we decided, let's just go ahead and, uh, and drive to the hospital, and, uh, and we'll have the doctors uh, check her out. And about four hours later, I was holding my uh, my son 
We drove to the hospital uh, with no assurances. We had sort of optimistic hope that maybe she was in labor, that maybe her uh, water had, uh, had broken. Well, that's kind of like our text this morning. Obviously, this was not my opening illustration last week, but that's kind of like our, uh, our text this morning. The Ninevites, uh, in our text, as we're going to, uh, to see, they've been warned of this impending judgment. Jonah's message for them is, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. They've been warned of this impending judgment with no explicit promise of, uh, of delivery, of, of deliverance from God's wrath, from His anger, from His judgment. But they repent with this optimistic hope that maybe God will relent. And just as we found our hopes actually fulfilled Uh, Our optimism was fulfilled with the delivery of a baby, so the Ninevites find that their hopes are also fulfilled with deliverance from divine judgment. So why did they repent? Why did God relent? Did God change His mind? All of those kinds of things are going to come up in our text uh, this morning. That's what we want to talk about. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. Uh, As I often do, I just want to ask you first just to pray for yourself that you would uh, not be distracted, that you would be an expository listener this morning, that you would actually engage with God's Word and not merely seek to be entertained, that you would ask that of those around as well, that God would give us a collective desire to hear and to heed His Word. And then would you pray for me, just that I would be uh, faithful to God's Word and proclaim it rightly. So Father, we do ask... Lord, that you would give grace to us this morning, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold the glorious things that you have revealed to us through this book. And I pray that you would use it, Lord, to sanctify your church, that you would make us more holy and faithful for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in verse 6, again, Jonah 3, starting in verse 6, which says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So let's set uh, the context. Uh, Most of you are aware of this, especially if you've been coming over the past few weeks, but Jonah is this Israelite prophet. We see him uh, one other time. He's mentioned in Scripture. He's this Israelite Jewish prophet, and he receives a word from the Lord, from Yahweh, and that word says that he is to go and to proclaim divine judgment to Nineveh, which which is a substantial city, Uh, within the kingdom of Assyria, a city that's known for idolatry, known for violence, known for all kinds of cruelty, and Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. And so instead, he uh, flees towards Tarshish. He gets on a boat, but God cannot be outrun, God cannot be outwitted, and so God stops Jonah from fleeing by sending a storm. And so Jonah is then thrown overboard as kind of a shadow of substitutionary atonement. He's thrown overboard so that the sailors on the boat may live, and instantly the sea becomes calm. Uh, But Jonah is in the middle of the sea. He is going to drown, and so God appoints a fish to swallow him. The fish is a means of deliverance for him. Jonah spends the next three days in the belly of the, the beast until it vomits him up on the shore. And once again, God uh, tells him to go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah actually obeys. And he gets to Nineveh, and he proclaims God's judgment, and immediately the people begin to respond. We saw that in our text a couple of weeks ago, which brings us to this passage this morning, 
Word travels fast. The people have begun this sort of uh, spontaneous, uh, immediate repentance. Jonah's barely there for a day, and the entire city is in an uproar. And then the word reaches the king. Now, we've mentioned before the savagery of the Assyrians, that their kings in particular were known for beheading their enemies. They're known for flaying them. That is that they remove their skin while they're still alive. They're known for gouging out the eyes of their enemies. They would parade uh, conquered captives around with chains in their noses and so forth. So when he hears the message, when the king hears the message, when the king rises from his throne, the cultural expectation, imagine reading this for the first time, never having read the story of Jonah before, your expectation is for this king to rise up and to confront Jonah, to persecute him, to torture him, to kill him. But instead, what does he do? It says that he trades his royal robe for sackcloth. He trades his throne for ashes. Why does he do that? What's well, a sign of humility and contrition? Now, let me clarify something. That doesn't mean that if you were really repentant a couple of weeks ago, whenever we uh, talked about this text and sackcloth and ashes, that you would have taken off your clothes and rolled around on the aisle. If you take off your clothes in the middle of the church, that's just one more thing you have to repent of, right? That's not what this text is talking about. Instead, this is a culturally appropriate sign of repentance within many ancient Near Eastern cultures. That what they would do is they would trade their sort of lofty, uh, best uh, clothing for their worst. It's kind of like in, uh, in our context where you go to a funeral and you wear all black. Or, or maybe a generation ago, you might have worn a veil or something like that. Whereas it, it is kind of different, though, because in our culture, you tend to put on something that you don't normally wear. Maybe you put on a tie and you normally don't wear a tie. We tend to dress up whenever we go about mourning. And it's the exact opposite in, uh, in most ancient Near Eastern uh, contexts and cultures, that they would dress down as a sign that they are spiritually impoverished rather than wearing their most fancy clothes as a sign of, uh, of feasting and of royalty and of riches and all of these sorts of things. They would uh, wear something that kind of demonstrated uh, visibly and publicly that they were humble, that they were contrite, that they were spiritually impoverished, uh, all of these uh, sorts of things. And so uh, just as a, a by the way, just as an aside, you definitely don't need to know this, but I just think it's interesting. The Hebrew word for sackcloth is actually sack. It's actually the, uh, the Hebrew word, the Latin is sacus and the Greek is sackos. So you can go and impress your friends with that bit of uh, useless uh, trivia or whatever. Uh, but we see this combination of sackcloth and ashes a number of times throughout uh, the Bible in times of mourning. I'm not going to read all of these passages. You can go and just look this up. They tend to go together, sackcloth and uh, ashes. And so that's the king's response. The king's response is to lay aside his pomp, to lay aside his privilege, to lay aside his uh, signs of royalty, and to clothe himself with the most uncomfortable, the most unfashionable thing that he has as a sign of his spiritual poverty and humility and grief. So that's the king's response. One quick thought before we uh, move on. I want you to notice, if you will, how fast and how fluid the narrative is at this point. Now think back, a couple of weeks ago, we spent uh, 10 verses in chapter 2, and that 10 verses just covered Jonah's prayer. That's it. 
Whereas in the span of 10 verses in, uh, in chapter 3, Jonah has been called again by God to go to Nineveh. He's traveled all the way to Nineveh, hundreds of miles. He's begun to preach. The people have repented. The king has repented. The king has published a decree uh, of national repentance, and God has relented. Notice how fast, how fluid things are. In other words, there's no opposition. There's no interruptions to the narrative. Unlike in the first half of the story of Jonah, where there's all kinds of obstacles. There's all kinds of plot twists that we see. It begins with God calls Jonah, but Jonah runs. Jonah runs, but God appoints a storm. The sailors cry out, but Jonah is asleep. Jonah is thrown into the sea, but a big fish swallows him and so forth. There's all of these plot twists. There's all these interruptions. There's all of these obstacles. In other words, I think that the events of this chapter are intentionally told in such a way as to show this stark contrast between Nineveh and between Jonah. There is such a lengthy, there's such an unnecessary delay between Jonah hearing the word of the Lord and actually heeding the word of the Lord. Whereas the Ninevites and even the king, they hear the word and what do they do? They instantly respond. They immediately respond. Yet again, we see something that we've seen throughout the book, that the godless pagan Assyrians are more noble and more obedient than the esteemed prophet of Israel. By the way, this is a theme that you're going to see throughout the Scripture. If you're reading the Gospels, you'll see this exact same thing in Jesus' ministry. Who is it that actually responds to the Gospel of the Kingdom? It's not the religious elite. It's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who is it? It's not the Sanhedrin. It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. It's the lepers. It's the Gentiles. It's the other outcasts who respond to the gospel of the kingdom while the religious elite do not. So in the, the context of the book of Jonah, these pagan sailors and these godless Ninevites, they react correctly. They respond correctly to the word of the Lord. In fact, as we've seen, even the weather and the sea and a big fish respond correctly. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, a worm, the wind, and a plant obey the sovereign creator as well. In other words, if you read this story, every single one and every single thing responds correctly to the sovereign creator except the one that we might expect to do so, the one who is the prophet. That's just an observation from the story that the obedience of the Ninevites and the king is immediate. It's instantaneous as contrasted with, uh, with Jonah. So I want to just take a second, though, and apply that observation to our own lives and for us to filter our lives through that observation and ask you the question, are you more like Jonah or are you more like the Ninevites? When it comes to heeding God's word as revealed in Scripture, are you slow are you hesitant to obey? Do you stall? Do you hesitate? Do you say that I need to think about it? I need to pray about it? I need to weigh the options? Don't get me wrong. Praying is really good. But you don't need to pray about whether or not to obey God's word. You don't have to think about, you don't have to pray about whether or not to stop looking at those images on the internet. You don't have to think about or pray about whether or not you should stop gossiping or start reading your Bible, or start confessing your sins to others, or whatever it might be. When God speaks, our obedience should be without delay. 
Delayed obedience is simply temporary disobedience. So the people and the king respond immediately. Let's keep going. Verses 7 through 8. And he, that's the king, issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So now we see that not only does the king personally repent, but he also calls for this national repentance. By and large, the people had already individually and informally and spontaneously begun to repent on their own, but the king kind of codifies it. He formalizes it. He legalizes this response. By the way, just as an aside, this doesn't mean, this text doesn't mean that the Ninevites were born again. This doesn't mean that the the Ninevites were saved unto eternal life, that they started the First Baptist Church of Nineveh or something like that. In the Bible, we see there is a difference between temporary surface level repentance and the type of repentance that comes with being born again, the type of repentance that comes with entering the kingdom of God, the type of repentance that comes with entering the family of God. And I think the Ninevites experience the former. You see, they're delivered from temporary judgment, but not from God's ultimate judgment. In fact, if you're a a fan of history and you look at this historically, uh, depending on how you date the book, not long after the events of the book of Jonah, uh, Assyria would actually be destroyed. Nineveh would ultimately be destroyed. So there's no hint in the text that the Ninevites offered sacrifices. They don't yoke themselves to the Mosaic law or become Jews. They don't pack up and move to Israel to be near the temple. They don't reference God's personal covenantal name, Yahweh. They just call him God. In other words, they don't do any of the things that might be expected for them to be in an actual covenant relationship with God under the old covenants. So this seems to be short-lived temporary repentance leading to temporary deliverance from uh, judgment. But I want us to notice a few things about, uh, from this text. All right, the first one, and this is my favorite. Notice that the decree involves man and beast. You see that there? Let neither man nor beast eat or drink anything. Let them put on sackcloth. I would love to know how the Ninevites explain this to their cows. Right? Okay, milkshake, buttercup. You're not going to eat or drink anything for a few days. I don't know how you stop a bull from just bending down and eating grass. But that's not the point. The point is that this is what's called a mayorism. And, uh, and so not M-A-R like a mayor, like a, a horse or something like that, but M-E-R-I-S-M. This is called a mayorism. And we'll get to the significance of that here in a uh, second. Not only are man and beast to fast from food and drink, but also to be covered with sackcloth. Now, this is not permission for you to go and to put a sweater on your dog or to put cute little socks and shoes on your dog or something like that. If you're going to do that, you might as well let them fast so they'll starve of the, rather than face the kind of public humiliation of having to wear a sweater. So why is it that, uh, that the text mentions man and beast? We don't see this much throughout the, the Scripture. We don't, certainly don't see this uh, in Israel's history. But having animals kind of join in this collective national repentance was actually fairly common in other cultures. We actually see it uh, a number of times in extra-biblical literature. That's, that's literature that exists outside uh, of the Bible. And in the context of Jonah, this reference to man and beast is going to help perform a couple of functions for us. 
First, it's going to show us just how universal this decree truly is. By law, there are no exceptions throughout the land of Nineveh. That's what man and beast is doing. Again, this is called a merism. What's a merism? What's a figure of speech in which two words are used to convey a single larger idea. For instance, if I say ladies and gentlemen, or if I say flesh and bone, or if I say that I searched every nook and cranny, I don't mean by that that I just looked in the, uh, the nooks and I just looked in the crannies. I don't even know what a nook or a cranny is, right? What do I mean whenever I say I searched every nook and cranny? I mean, I looked everywhere. That's what a merism is intended to do. The most famous merism in all of Scripture, uh, I'm sorry, in all of literature, actually occurs in the very first verse of Scripture. It says, in the beginning, God did what? He created what? The heavens and the earth. That's a merism. In other words, he created everything. That's the, uh, the point there. And, and so, uh, this is a figure of speech. The, the reference to the man and beast is a figure of speech intended to emphasize just how universal, just how complete, just how uh, total this repentance should be. The second thing that I think this does, uh, the, the reference to beast here does, is provide yet another contrast to Jonah. In some sense, even the animals, quote-unquote, repent, while Jonah does not. Yet again, it provides this stark contrast between the Assyrians and the, uh, the prophet. So that's the first thing that I want you to notice, the, uh, the repentance, quote-unquote, of man and beast. Another observation for you to, uh, to see is the mention of what it is that they're repenting of. Look at the last sentence in this section. It says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Again, we've already mentioned how historically and horrifically cruel Assyria uh, was, so they are to repent of their cruelty. They're to repent of their violence. Does this mean that all violence is always bad? Is that Jonah's point here? Is that the king's point? Is that scripture's point? Absolutely not. The Hebrew word here is actually Hamas, which is not really related to the, uh, the, the terror group Hamas. Uh, the Hebrew word here refers specifically to unrighteous violence, whereas violence can also be just. After all, what has God just done? He's just threatened Nineveh with violence. He's threatened violence upon Assyria. So this is not a rejection of all violence. This is a rejection of wicked violence. In the Bible, there is the unjust use of force, as with murder or assault or rape or something like that. There's also the just use of force, capital punishment in, uh, in Israel. When God commands the nation to judge the Canaanites, when David defeats the Philistines and Goliath, when God judges the wicked, there's a really good example of this distinction between righteous and unrighteous violence. Uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, here in the Metroplex, uh, you might have seen where somebody opened fire on a federal building in uh, Dallas. That is an unrighteous use of violence. But what happened? Uh, an officer violently opposed him and shot him and killed him. That is a righteous use of violence. I mention this only because it's becoming increasingly trendy and cool and popular to imply that violence is always evil, to reduce it down to kind of its lowest common denominator. So if we really care about life, we can't just oppose abortion. We must also oppose all war no matter what and all capital punishment and, uh, and so forth. Now, a biblical worldview might question whether or not any individual war is actually just or not. A biblical worldview could actually question whether America's system of capital punishment is just or not, 
or if it's broken or whatever it might be, but a biblical, consistent worldview cannot reject all violence uh, whatsoever because that is uh, biblical. There is just and unjust violence, and the Ninevites are to repent of unjust, wicked, evil violence. The third observation that you should get from this text is that repentance manifests itself visibly. Whether they're fasting or they're clothing themselves with sackcloth and sitting in ashes, there's some sort of tangible, visible manifestation. There's some sort of tangible aspect to their response. Contrast, if you will, the uh, response of the Ninevites with Jonah's experience in the fish. He seems to repent. He seems to kind of have learned his lesson when he's in the belly of the fish. He ends up going to Nineveh. He prays. He says the right words, but his heart isn't actually contrite. How do we know that? Everything that we're going to read in, our, uh, in chapter 4 is going to clue us in to the fact that he isn't actually repentant. He hasn't actually learned his lesson. So let me ask you this question. Each week we mention things to repent of. Let me ask you the question, do you ever actually repent of those things? Do you just think the right thoughts? Do you just say the right words and then kind of move on to lunch or whatever it is that you're doing after this? Or are you actually grieved by sin? Are you truly moved to compassion for others? Are you truly moved for, to conviction or hatred of some particular sin or conviction for neglecting some sort of command? Repentance manifests itself. As faith without works is dead, so repentance without works is dead. So that's the second observation or the third observation, sorry, the fourth observation is that repentance is corporate. Notice, if you will, that the entire city repents. So we see here this, this what's called uh, corporate repentance, identificational repentance, or something like this. Uh, we certainly see that in this text, but let me tell you something. This is not the same. If you were to go and just search the internet for corporate repentance, this is nothing like what you might read on Facebook, which is surprising, right? Because Facebook Facebook tends to be a great source for careful theological nuance. We all know that, all right? But this is not at all what you would read if you were to just Google search corporate uh, repentance. And so let me uh, make some observations uh, for you. Notice the text says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So who repents? Those who are actually guilty of evil and violence. This is where contemporary culture is going to go astray when it comes to this idea of corporate repentance because it suggests a responsibility to repent even when there is no individual guilt. For example, current culture says uh, all rich people must uh, be greedy by definition or that uh, all, uh, all Americans need to repent of ethnocentrism or that uh, all white people need to repent of racism, or all black people need to repent of racism, or all Hispanics need to repent of racism, or whatever it might be, or all men have to repent of toxic masculinity, or all women need to repent of feminism, or whatever uh, it might be. The problem with this is that it's reductionistic, and that this theology tends to build up what God has already torn down throughout the New Testament over and over and over again, Christ says to downplay these sorts of differences, these sorts of distinctions, whereas our culture says to shout them, to emphasize them, to wear them, to wear your ethnicity, to wear your race, to wear your socioeconomic status or gender as a badge of honor or as a badge of shame. 
So boast in or repent of your race or your sex or your education or whatever it might be. The problem with that is that the Bible says in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek and therefore there's no black or white. There is no uh, slave or free. By extension, there is no rich or poor. There's no male or female. So when talking about corporate repentance, we need to keep two truths in mind. The first one being we should always repent of any sins for which we are actually culpable or complicit. You should always repent of any sins for which you are actually culpable or complicit in. The second one that you need to keep in mind is while we should acknowledge and be grieved by the sins of those who share the same nationality or skin color or gender, our primary identity is bound up in Christ. It's not bound up in our race. It's not bound up in our nationality. It's not bound up in our socioeconomic status or in our gender. And thus, we're not called to repent of the sins of groups if we ourselves are not guilty of those sins. We shouldn't ignore the sins of our forefathers. We should acknowledge and confess them, but that doesn't mean that we're responsible for them. Back to Nineveh. Why does the city repent? There are two ways to answer that. We've already seen one. They repent because they're guilty. The second one we see in, uh, in verse 9. So let's turn there. Jonah 3.9 says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. So now we get to the reason. We get to the hope. As far as the Assyrians know, there is no guarantee. There's no promise. There's no assurance that if they repent, God would relent. Now from our vantage point, Uh, uh, by virtue of the fact that we actually have the entire canon of Scripture. We have the entire Bible. We know that. We have Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, which says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So we know that, but the Assyrians in the moment don't know that. So why is it that they repent? Well, they've already seen God's omniscience. They've already seen God's omnipresence. They've already seen God's omnipotence in the story of Jonah and the fish. But notice they've also seen His mercy. They've seen that Jonah has run, that Jonah has disobeyed, and yet God has not destroyed them. God has not been capricious. God has not been mean. God has not been unkind. Even though it would have been perfectly just for God to have destroyed Jonah, By virtue of his disobedience, God has not done that. God has shown perfect mercy and grace to the prophet. So they've seen that. They've seen that he is not only powerful, but also gracious and kind. Even the fact that God is delivering a warning to Nineveh rather than simply blasting it to smithereens is a sign of his grace. The fact that he appoints 40 days rather than doing it immediately, all of these are little hints that God is merciful and there is hope and repentance. We'll come back uh, to that. But for now, let's move on to verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. When we began this book, we mentioned a fancy theological word called anthropomorphism. It's not just a theological word, uh, but it's a, a fancy word, which is a figure of speech in which you describe some non-human thing Human, using human attributes. Richard, have you ever seen uh, Toy Story or The Lion King or basically any cartoon ever, right? 
and so we've been watching a whole lot of Toy Story uh, lately in, uh, in my house. That's a great example of anthropomorphism. These inanimate toys are animated in such a way as to portray human intelligence and human emotions and human speech and so forth. And we see anthropomorphism all over the Bible. In fact, you could say that any kind of uh, speech about God is anthropomorphic because God is uh, indescribable to some uh, degree. But uh, we see this all over the Bible when it says that God is a mighty right hand. It doesn't mean that he has fingers like you or I or blood vessels or fingernails or whatever it might be. When it describes God's wings, it doesn't mean that he has feathers or that he flaps them and flies. Scripture is speaking figuratively, speaking anthropomorphically. The Bible also uses anthropomorphic language when it comes to God's knowledge. When it says that God remembers something, we shouldn't uh, think from that. We shouldn't infer that that means that God sometimes forgets certain things. He never forgets. When it says that God is sorry or that God repents, that doesn't mean that he did something wrong. By definition, God never does anything wrong. So we see anthropomorphism all over Scripture, and we see it in particular in this passage in at least two places. First, when it says that God sees what they did. Notice the first phrase there, when God saw what they did. His seeing is not like our seeing. So one week ago, I saw my son for the first time. In other words, I experienced something I had not experienced before. God does not experience time the way that we do. His seeing is instantaneously, he sees past, present, and future. He knows all things at once. So that's an anthropomorphism. The second one, notice where it says that God relented. You might even have a translation that says God changes his mind, although I don't think that's a good translation. It says that God relented. You might be tempted, though, to think that God changed his mind. He was going to destroy the Ninevites, but he kind of gave it a second thought and he reconsidered. You might even be tempted to think that he didn't know what they were going to do because uh, even though he knows all things past and present, the future is something that he cannot know. Well, that's a view called open theism. Or you might think that uh, he knew what was going to happen, but only because he kind of sees the future. And, uh, and so he knows the future free choices of humanity. He didn't really plan it. He didn't really ordain it. But he kind of had wishful thinking. He really, really crossed his finger and he hoped that the Ninevites would repent. That's a view called Arminianism. I don't think either of these actually reflect what's going on in the text. God really isn't changing his mind at all. Again, this is anthropomorphic language. Let me give you three reasons for rejecting the idea that God changes his mind here. Three reasons. First, the idea that God changes his mind is illogical. It doesn't make sense. God cannot get better or worse. If he gets better, then he wasn't perfect in the first place. And if he gets worse, then he's no longer perfect, which means he's no longer God. So for God to change would imply something of his perfection. That is not true. So it's illogical. The second reason to reject the idea that God changes his mind uh, is because uh, of hundreds of passages of Scripture that speak of God's sovereignty and his omniscience. That God cannot change his mind if he already knows and ordains all things past, present, and future. So the first reason to reject it is because it's illogical. The second reason to reject it is because it is implicitly disproven by all the passages that speak of God's omniscience and his sovereignty. And the third reason to reject it is because it's disproven explicitly by dozens and dozens of texts that say that God doesn't change. 
We considered a number of these a couple of weeks ago. I want to look at them briefly again. Look at Psalm 102, 25 through 27, which says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Look at James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So God isn't changing his mind. So what is changing? Well, we read this quote also a couple of weeks ago. I think it's a really helpful summary. This is from uh, Herman Bavink. He says, there is change around, about, and outside of him, and there is change in people's relation to him, but there is not change in God himself. So God isn't changing, but rather the Ninevites have changed, and thus God relates to them differently. In other words, we understand from the context that God's warning to uh, Nineveh was conditional. He doesn't explicitly say, Nineveh will be overthrown unless you repent. But it's implied in the warning. When they repent, we see that God doesn't change at all. He simply acts in accordance with His unchanging character and His unchanging promises. His ultimate desire, His ultimate design, His ultimate intention was always to relent and to show mercy to Nineveh. Consider all the little hints that we see of that from the story of Jonah from our vantage point. First, consider the fact that He sends Jonah in the first place. Again, he could have just simply destroyed Nineveh the moment that he sees their sin. He could have simply destroyed them, but he said he sends a prophet hundreds of miles to them, which is a little hint, a little whisper of God's desire to show mercy to them. Or notice the fact that God saves Jonah by means of a fish. That's a hint that he desires to show mercy. How? Because this, these people worship a fish god. So it would have been a very powerful manifestation of God's mercy and grace for them to see Jonah delivered by means of a fish. He could have been delivered by anything. A giant eagle could have swooped down, or he could have been saved by a a floating door like uh, Rose in the Titanic or something like that. There's all kinds of ways that God could have saved Jonah, but he saves Jonah by the very means that would have spoken and ministered and resonated with the people of Nineveh. He uses a fish in order to testify to fish worshipers. Similar to the way that we see in, uh, in the account of Exodus that he uses plagues that actually correspond to the Egyptian gods in order to show his sovereignty over those gods. Third, the fact that God gives 40 days is a hint that he desires to show them mercy. He could have simply had Jonah come in and declare immediate judgment. And yet he gives 40 days days. Growing up, you might have had this experience. I had this experience. I could always tell the difference between when my parents just really, really wanted to spank me and when they wanted to give me an opportunity to obey. When they really, really uh, wanted to give me an opportunity to obey, they would start counting. They might start at 10. They might start at 3. Whatever it might be, they would give me some sort of opportunity. When they didn't really want to give me an opportunity to obey and they just wanted to spank me, my dad would get up from his chair, remove his belt in like one motion, somehow bend the space-time continuum. He would, he would uh, travel, you know, 
30 feet in less than a second in order to spank me. What's he doing in that moment? He's showing there is no opportunity in this moment for you to repent. There is no opportunity for you to obey. You've already exhausted my patience. That's what's happening here. The fact that God gives 40 days is a sign of his desire and designed to show mercy. So God is not surprised by the repentance of the Ninevites. In fact, God has ordained their repentance. He's orchestrated the circumstances of Jonah's life in his sovereignty to accomplish it. Now, why does all this matter? We just spent a lot of time uh, talking about words like anthropomorphism and concepts like the immutability or the unchangeability of God. Why does all of this matter? Let me tell you the reason that it matters. Because if God changes, then what of the promises that he makes to you? You have no assurance. You have no hope. If God can simply change his mind, then what certainty could you ever have that he wouldn't change his mind about his love for you, about his grace toward you? about the fulfillment of all of the the commands of Scripture by Christ, about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. What assurance would you have of eternal life or grace or mercy or anything else? So you see that this is not merely academic. This is profoundly practical. This could not be more practical for us. We began, the first song that we sang is, Your Hope is Built on Nothing Less. You could even change the lyrics there. Your hope is built on nothing less than the doctrine of God's unchangingness. And this passage seems like it would be a fitting uh, final scene of the book. This seems like it kind of could wrap it up. God relents, and the people of Nineveh kind of live happily ever after, but that's not really the end of the story. There's actually a whole other chapter. We've already tackled some of it uh, last week. We'll tackle the rest uh, next week. But before that, I I just want to bring one little application out uh, from this text that we might apply it to our life. I want to imagine that this story takes place within the 21st century, within our context. Let's imagine that Jonah comes to our church or to evangelical churches uh, in general, or that uh, Jonah comes to our country in uh, in particular and, uh, and gives this warning that says, yet in 40 days, America will be overthrown, or Parkway will be overthrown, or the evangelical church in America will be overthrown, or whatever it might be. I doubt very seriously that there would be all that much repentance. There certainly would have been an uproar, but not of repentance. Instead, there would have been accusations against God and accusations against the prophet. The city would have been in in an uproar, not of repentance, but self-righteousness. Jonah would have been accused of triggering the Ninevites by being too mean or too offensive, his message too strong, too unkind, unloving unbecoming of a prophet of the God of niceness and political correctness. What happens in our culture? You're familiar with this. You're probably aware of social media or the news, or you just interact with other people. You're not a hermit, and so you see what happens in our culture where someone gets confronted by truth. What do they naturally do? They get offended. They get angry. They don't recognize that's kind of exactly the point. God's Word is supposed to offend you. Because apart from His grace, you are utterly broken. You are utterly depraved. You are under His wrath and condemnation. If you don't like that, good. You shouldn't like that. You shouldn't like wrath. You shouldn't like condemnation. You shouldn't like God's judgment. But the response is not to rant and complain against God or the prophet or Scripture or truth. The response is to repent. To say, woe is me. 
I am undone to humble yourself, to be contrite, to shed your garments of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and independence and to clothe yourself with humility and contrition. The response is to repent. That's the point of God's warnings. So let me apply that to our little church here at Parkway. If you leave here each week and you feel really great about yourself, if you feel like you're really crushing it, you've got this whole Christianity thing down, you're the best. You've missed something entirely. Something's definitely wrong. If you're not regularly rebuked and confronted and offended by Scripture, then one of two things is true. Then you're resurrected and that's none of us. Or you're naive and ignorant and you're not paying attention. Here's what's really truly convicting about this passage. We talked about it before. The Assyrians have no ultimate promise, no guarantee of deliverance if they would repent, and yet they do it. They do it immediately. They do it powerfully. They do it publicly. We, as Christians, if you love and trust Jesus, if you're in Christ, we have a promise, a certainty, an assurance of divine mercy if we would repent. And yet how many of us cling to our comforts and conveniences and cling to our reputations because we're so afraid if we would repent, if we would confess our sins, what would that do? How would our spouse look at us? How would others look at us? How would our co-workers look at us? How would the people in our community group look at us? We know what the Word says, but we don't care. Or we don't like it. And so we ignore it. We neglect it. We try to uh, hunt, run from it. So here's what I really love about this text, that it speaks to us in all of this room. Everyone in this room is in need of repentance. Whether that is the first uh, initial repentance leading to salvation or that is the ongoing repentance of just living the Christian life, mortification of sin, vivification of the Spirit. Every one of us in this room, some of us are trying to be repentant. Some of us are trying to be contrite. By God's grace, we're seeking humility and righteousness. And so this passage is a great comfort to us because it reminds us of the grace and mercy of God that He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But others of us in this room are unrepentant. Others of us perhaps are proud. Others of us are clinging to our sin, relishing our sin, loving our sin. And this passage reminds us that God will not be mocked. There is judgment. So may this message be the very means by which God's kindness leads us to repentance. How do we repent? That's what I want to talk to about as we prepare our hearts for communion. So let's pray as the men come forward to serve us the table. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the example of, uh, of the Assyrians, of the Ninevites. That even if their repentance wasn't complete uh, in the sense that our repentance should be, that it was instantaneous, that it was immediate, that it was uh, corporate, that it was visible, all of these sorts of things. And so I pray that we would be more like them than we would Jonah clinging to our reputation, clinging to our self-righteousness, clinging to our anger and bitterness and resentment disobeying your word. Lord, may we be a people marked by repentance because that's what your church looks like. So I pray that you would help us, make us into your image. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.